Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, you said the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Father, accomplish the purpose for which your word was ordained. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear hearts to receive, that you might be glorified and we forever changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there's this famous scene. Now, if you haven't read The Chronicles of Narnia or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the story is basically about uh, a family of children who, who, who quite literally stumble into a magical world called Narnia. And in Narnia, there's this evil white witch who is ruling illegitimately. And because of her reign, it is always winter and never Christmas. And anyone who opposes her reign, she turns into stone. When the children get to Narnia, they start meeting these different animals uh, who can talk. And they begin to hear rumors of this character named Aslan, who's supposed to make things right again and defeat the White Witch. And have this conversation with these, uh, this, these characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, about this mysterious Aslan. And uh, one of the gals named Lucy asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is, is Aslan a man? To which Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, one of the other girls. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. So as we've been walking through Luke's gospel, we've seen time and time and time again that Jesus has come into the world as the true king, and he is so good. He has shown us his compassion in unbelievable ways. He has shown his grace to the undeserving. He has defended the weak and the wounded. He's called both the rich and the poor to himself. Jesus is a good, good king but he's not a safe king 
We can't control him. He can't be contained. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to do whatever he pleases with whoever he pleases, however he pleases, and whenever he pleases. The, the authority of Jesus is unhindered. His authority knows no boundaries. And in Luke's gospel, we have seen that Jesus has the authority uh, to forgive sins by simply declaring people forgiven. He just straight up bypasses all the religious practices of the day, and people are furious about this. And in Matthew's gospel, at the end of his famous sermon on the mountain, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it says that the people are astonished because Jesus was, was teaching as one who had authority. He wasn't quoting other rabbis or other sources. He wasn't appealing to tradition. His word alone had absolute authority, and the people were astonished. And in our sermon text this morning, we see Jesus go toe-to-toe with the religious leaders because he is acting and speaking with with absolute, unrivaled, unhindered authority. And Jesus' authority disrupts the religious system that was taking place in Jerusalem, and they don't like it. There's strong opposition. My friends, not much has changed in our day, has it? People still refuse the authority of Jesus. People still want to tame Jesus, control Jesus, make Jesus a private matter. People will say things like, that's good for you, but don't you bring that Jesus stuff around here. My dear friends, Jesus is king and Lord of all. He cannot be tamed. And uh, as our culture continues to become increasingly post-Christian, we will meet opponents of the gospel as we seek to bear witness to this Jesus in the world. And so as Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the opponents of the gospel, we get a glimpse into uh, the source and the heart of opposition as well as some help in how to respond to opposition. That's our, that, those are our two points today. Uh, what is the source and the heart of opposition? Why are people uh, hesitant to Jesus' authority and how are we to respond Uh, when we are in the middle of opposition. So number one, what is the source and heart of opposition? Read with me in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What was it? that drew out the opposition towards Jesus. Why is it that Jesus suddenly finds himself in the middle of a fight? Now make no mistake, this is not a pleasant conversation over tea. This is a tense scenario. This is a tense scene. If you look back uh, to chapter 19, verse 45, you'll recall that Jesus had just entered the temple 
and he began to disrupt the unjust temple market. The religious leaders of that day were, uh, they had set up a system of manipulation and control regarding what was acceptable sacrifices and, and essentially in the process they were keeping people from worshiping God freely and they were making money in the process. It was deeply unjust and Jesus goes in there and starts flipping over tables and calling them out on it because Jesus has had enough of it. But that's not the only reason for the opposition. In fact, it wasn't until Jesus started preaching the gospel that the religious leaders came upon Jesus to try to trap him. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 20 that Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Jesus is preaching good news. The good news is all about his saving work. Jesus is at the center of the gospel. It's all about him. He's preaching himself. He's saying that he and he alone has come into the world to set things right again. That he has come to bring about a new kind of kingdom. He's preaching that he is the one that will set things right and that forgiveness of sins is found in his sacrifice alone. And my dear friends, the gospel is good news for sinful people who have been given the gift of desperation. But to all who want to save themselves by their own efforts and holding all the pieces of their lives together, the gospel is deeply offensive. Self-help and maintaining control in your life is of no use at all when it comes to being made right with God and entering into his kingdom. And don't we just love saving ourselves? Jesus was preaching the good news that we could be made right with God through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And they didn't like that. And in this passage, we see Jesus absolutely devoted to both the ministry of the word, he's preaching the gospel, and deed. He is flipping over tables, bringing about justice where there is injustice. The preaching of the good news and working for justice in community. Jesus is utterly devoted to do these two things. Now, uh, Christians have often fallen into one of two ditches when we think about the ministry of the word and the ministry of deed. Um, more uh, traditional type Christians have the posture of, uh, you know, we'll say that our mission is to preach the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, We're just to herald the good news and not be concerned with what's going on in the world, in the community. Uh, The world is dark. The world is dangerous. It's irredeemable. We're to preach the gospel, and and only that that alone is our mission. Uh, John Stott, he was a pastor, theologian in the UK. He's noted that for many who have this posture, it comes from uh, our view of the world as being only awful, irredeemable, essentially a burning fire, and our only job is to pull people out of it before it's too late. And like most overemphasis, there's some truth to that. There is a lot of darkness in the world. There is a lot of evil in the world. There is a lot of parts of the world and the cultures that we live that, that is irredeemable. But that's only a half-truth. And he says that uh, our pessimistic posture towards the world often comes from having too small of a view of God. You see, we view God as uh, judge and savior only, and we forget that he's also creator, redeemer, and restorer. 
We forget that God created all things in the world, and he says, behold, this is very good. And we forget that God's actually bringing about restoration and redemption in this world through his son Jesus and his redeemed people, the church. God is in the business, not of destroying the world, but of making the world new. On the other ditch, more progressive Christians have said, our mission is to change society to fix the brokenness of the world, to establish a just society. Preaching the gospel is secondary at best. In fact, it might even be harmful. God is fixing the world, and that's what we need to get in on. Uh, John Stott, again, gives this critique, saying that apart from people who know God, cultural and social renewal oftentimes just creates more oppressive and unjust systems. It just perpetuates the problem. And and the church takes her lead from the world rather than the church being a prophetic voice to the world. And in the process, uh, the church eventually loses sight of the good news of Jesus and becomes just like the rest of the world. And as Jesus would say, we've lost our saltiness. So there are two ditches that we often fall into, either all word and little to no deed or all deed and little to no world. Jesus is paving a different way. And folks, as a church, to be captivated by Jesus means that we're on mission with his mission, word and deed. We care deeply about gospel proclamation. We care deeply about gospel justice in the world that we live. And this combination, word and deed, this is what draws opposition to Jesus and his authority. Jesus just getting up in everyone's business and preaching that he alone is a way of salvation. That's the source of his opposition. Just not letting things maintain status quo. What's the heart of their opposition? Notice what's exposed in their hearts during the argument. They ask Jesus a question. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus like the wonderful, masterful, wise savior that he is, turns the table on them and places them, not him, in an inescapable dilemma. He flips the script. Notice that Jesus is like not in the slightest bit intimidated by these guys. Uh, They're ganging up on him. These are like the elites of society. Putting Jesus on the spot and Jesus just cool as a cucumber, turns the tables, unintimidated whatsoever. And honestly, we would do well, Waterbrook, to realize that Jesus isn't on defense in the world. He is on the throne. His gospel is going forward. He has overcome all opposition through the cross and resurrection. His kingdom is advancing. We don't have to act like we're on the defense all the time. And we would do well when confronted with pushback or snarky questions to turn the tables and ask some thoughtful questions of our own. Like Sinclair Ferguson says, questions that expose the hypocrisy and double-mindedness of those who have asked us the questions. Jesus asked him in verse 4, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? What a brilliant move. Right? They're put in a corner and they have this little powwow among themselves and they're going back and forth and at the end of their little powwow, all they can say is, I don't know. And you see what Jesus is doing, right? He's putting them in a position where their true motives are exposed. The heart of their opposition. If they say John's baptism was from heaven, then it will become obvious that they're frauds because they didn't believe in John who proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away sins. If they say from man, then 
All the people will oppose him and and perhaps even stone them because they believed in John's baptism. Jesus exposes their real heart issue. They want control. And they'll do intellectual gymnastics to maintain it. These guys don't give a rip about what's true or not. All they care about is maintaining their power and control. All they can think about is the consequences of how they answer. There's a huge difference between someone who's genuinely wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity and they want to know what's true versus someone uh, who only asks questions so that they can justify their unbelief and lifestyle. You see the difference? Because let's be honest, there's someone who wants to maintain control of their own lives and do what they want to do in their own lives. Uh, the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus and put your trust in him is quite inconvenient. It's not that people cannot know Jesus, it's that they will not know Jesus. Jared Wilson, he's a, he's a pastor. He, he posted something on social media the other day that that was, he just put his finger so beautifully on this. He said this, he says, if you want Christ, you can have him. The having him is that simple. It's the wanting him that's hard. You see, we want what we want, and, and we're so good, aren't we, at justifying and rationalizing why what we want is right and true and good? rather than letting real reason determine our desires, our desires ter- determine how we reason. And if we're honest, it's, it's a lot easier to not care about what's true and to justify our own desires. But this can go both ways, can't it? There's, there's folks who outright reject Jesus and they're doing intellectual gymnastics to, to justify their own desires, but then there's those who claim the name of Jesus and they do so in such a way to maintain their own wickedness and cover up the own wickedness of their heart. A lot of people in recent years, I'm sure you've had conversations similar that I have, a lot of folks in recent years have said things along the lines of, how in the world is it that the slave trade in America was maintained by and large by Christians? If that's what your Christianity is all about, I want nothing to do with it. And that's true, by the way. People who named the name of Jesus stole and owned people for their own labor. That's horrendous and inexcusable. And if you're here this morning and you're actually wrestling with how does this even make sense, I've seen the injustices in the name of Jesus and all of that, uh, I, I want us to listen to Frederick Douglass as he kind of wrestled through this. Now, if you don't know who Frederick Douglass was, he was a slave who escaped slavery and then went on to be used mightily by God uh, to work for the abolition of the slave trade in America. And it's glorious. And he, he wrote down his story um, in autobiographies. And in one of them, this is what he says. He says, I uh, assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders finds their strongest protection. Were I, again, to be reduced to the chains of slavery, next to the enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For of all the slaveholders with whom I have ever met. Religious slaveholders are the worst. 
I've ever found them to be the meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. It was my unhappy lot not only to belong to a religious slaveholder, but to live in a community of such religionists. See what he's saying there? He's saying, quote-unquote, Christianity became the cover-up, the justifier of enslaving people and treating people who were made in the image of God utterly brutally. But at the end of his autobiography, he wrote an appendix. And in there he says this. He says, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to the Christianity proper. For between Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So why that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Can I get an amen to that? Why am I saying this? Like Douglas, when we look to Jesus for who he really is, we recognize that all of our excuses melt away. We can use both secular reasoning and religion to justify our own evil desires. And look, if you're here this morning and you aren't sure what you think about Jesus, if you're on the fence about Jesus, I I, want to ask you why. Why really are you on the fence? Why really are you unsure? If it's actually an intellectual hardship and you're grappling with the truth claims of Christianity, I and so many others would love to have those conversations with you and walk with you as you wrestle with that. But if you're honest with yourself, are you unsure because you really just want to justify your own desires? You don't want to let go of control of your own lives. Got to be honest with ourselves. Um, Tabidi and Boyle said, sometimes a simple admission of wrong is the most freeing thing in the world. Also, um, are you here this morning living in active, unrepentant sin and using some version of Christianity to excuse it? You need to repent and stop using Jesus as an excuse to live in hypocrisy. You need to trust in the real Jesus not some version who simply affirms your own desires. Tim Keller has said this. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, there's probably a good chance that you're simply worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And before the first service, Tim Graff added to this. He said it really well. He said, if your feathers have never been ruffled, there's a good chance you've never met Jesus. You see, the invading authority of Jesus dismantles our excuses. Both are excuses of keeping him at arm's length while we try to maintain control of our own lives and also the excuse of using him to justify something that he died to set us free from. And so the source of opposition is the authority of Jesus expressed in both word and deed, confronting our lostness and injustice. And the heart of opposition is demanding that we maintain control of our own lives. Next, Jesus tells a parable that illustrates how we should respond to this opposition, by the way, both in the world and in our own hearts. So read with me verses 9 through 18 of Luke 20. And he began to tell the people this parable. 
Notice, by the way, that he shifted from focusing on his opposition to the people who were hanging on his every word. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked them direct, He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's this parable about and what's Jesus teaching us in it? Now, a lot of parables, you don't want to over-allegorize it. Like, not every character necessarily represents someone. But this parable definitely does. Um, The parable is about an owner of a vineyard who represents God the Father. Who, who plants a vineyard, right? And, and the image of a vine or a vineyard would be quickly recognizable to anyone who was listening uh, to Jesus tell his parable at the time. A vine or a vineyard was one of the most common metaphors that was used for Israel in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 80, it says that God brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it among the nations. And the most famous of these metaphors is found in Isaiah chapter 5 where there's this love song, a love poem, Uh, in Isaiah, and it's about uh, God planting a vineyard and caring for the vineyard and tending to the vineyard, but the vineyard only produced wild grapes, bad fruit. And it says that the vineyard is Israel. And so the vineyard refers to Israel and to God's kingdom. The servants in the parable are the prophets who, who regularly call God's people back to faithfulness. And the tenants are the leaders of Israel. And the leaders continually refuse to give God what belongs to him. They confuse his, his mercy and his compassion and his patience with incompetence. They thought that they could take the kingdom by force and claim it as their own. This happens three times with the prophets. And then Jesus draws us into the very heart of God in verse 13 when the owner says, What then shall I do? Just think of the overwhelming mercy of God in that. I think any one of us would say, I'm going to destroy them right now. God says, I'm going to send my beloved son. The very same title that was used for Jesus when he was baptized by John and the sky cracked open and the voice of the father comes down and says, you are my beloved son. The owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son. And in the same way that the tenants rejected and killed the son in the parable, the religious leaders will reject Jesus and hang him upon that old rugged cross. They thought that they could rid, get rid of Jesus. They thought that they could secure power and self-salvation. They thought they could snuff out the mission of the son. And without realizing it, they advanced the mission of God in the world. Because they did not receive the Son, the gospel has gone to the nations. 
Because Jesus was rejected, as he quotes in Psalm 118, he has become the cornerstone. He was rejected on the cross and he was vindicated by his resurrection. He has become the cornerstone upon which we build our whole lives. And Jesus is crystal clear. Either we build our lives upon him or he will crush us. Now this whole idea of Jesus being a cornerstone was picked up very quickly by the early church. And you reread this throughout the New Testament. Uh, and, and in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, you see Peter and John use this idea when faced with opposition. This is, and this is one of the reasons that I think this parable, among other things, Jesus is, is helping us think through how to respond when faced with opposition. So if you have your Bible, turn, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 5. It's just a few books over. The scene in Acts chapter 4 is that uh, Peter and John, who are disciples of Jesus, this is after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended, uh, they're living on mission, and they're in Jerusalem. And they just healed a man. And crowds started to gather and started preaching the gospel. And uh, the leaders don't like it. Go figure. And pick up in chapter 4, verse 5 of the book of Acts, it says this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Does that sound familiar? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven um, given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Those who spend time with Jesus tend to respond like Jesus. You hear what they said there, right? This Jesus whom you crucified, the stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no other name besides Jesus Christ by which we might be saved. Those who spend time with Jesus respond with boldness, with conviction and Christ-centered clarity. So that's part of the reason I think that we should read this parable thinking through how, what can we learn about how to respond when faced with opposition. I have four things in this text I want to walk us through briefly. The first one is that we should not be surprised when people oppose the gospel. It shouldn't take us by surprise. Jesus knew the story that he was the climax of. He knew that throughout all of history, there have been people who refuse the reign of God in their lives. He knew that in the same way that Israel of old rejected the prophets, that he too was rejected by the leaders of Israel. And Jesus told us, didn't he, that because the world has rejected him, we shouldn't be surprised when we're rejected as well. Hear me on this. As followers of Jesus, we're not called out of the world. 
but into the world as ambassadors of reconciliation. Our communities are filled with people separated from God who have no hope apart from him. We're sent into the world with a message of good news, of grace and mercy, that they might be saved in Jesus Christ. But we should not be surprised, should we, when we're rejected. The gospel is an announcement that there is a new king on the throne. And again, this is really good news to those who know that they need a savior. But to those who want to be their own king, the gospel is deeply offensive. We should not be surprised when people respond negatively to the gospel. We share in Christ's sufferings. But resurrection life comes through suffering. The second thing we learn in this parable is that we don't have to be intimidated. Don't you love verse 17 in Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 20? This is right after Jesus says that... Uh, <laughs> The kingdom's going to be taken from Israel and given to the nations, and they say, surely not. They're furious. Verse 17 says, but he looked directly at them. Don't you love that? Just looking them in the eye. Not intimidated whatsoever. These guys are furious at Jesus. They're coming on Jesus saying, no way. And Jesus looks directly at them and proclaims truth with clarity and conviction. My dear friends, Jesus was not intimidated in the slightest of bit. He didn't beat around the bush. And wherever we go, whoever we talk to, whatever situation we find ourselves in because we're on mission with both word and deed, with King Jesus, remember, we don't have to be intimidated. Christ is with you. Christ is in you. Christ is for you. Christ will go before you. I love it. In the book of Acts, there's this other pattern that we see over and over again. It's, it's as the church is living on mission, they find themselves in, in difficult situations. It's then that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and filled with boldness in the moment of their needs. So often, don't we want courage before we step out? Don't we want assurance before we go out? Don't we want to know that, that people are going to receive us gladly before we make a move? My dear friends, Jesus shows up right on time. Not early and definitely not late. My dear friends, we can be courageous. Because Christ is with us. He will come through. The third thing that we learn is that Jesus didn't soften or change his message. Verse 18, Jesus says very plainly, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, if you reject Jesus, he will crush you. Several years ago, um, there's, you know, before I go into this, I'm not a huge fan at all of Christians kind of casting shade on other people who profess the name of Jesus, but this isn't Christianity what I'm about to, about to read. Several years ago, there was a popular pastor who was invited onto a TV show, and the TV host asked him point blank, do you believe that unless someone believes in Jesus, they're going to go to hell? To which this guy responds, well, I don't know. I'm very slow to judge. 
In fact, when I was a kid, I spent time with my father in India. Now, I don't know much about the religion over in India and their beliefs, but I do know that they were sincere. Now, I understand not wanting to offend people unnecessarily. I do. I get quite riled up when Christians like to pick fights unnecessarily. But friends, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, period. No one else has lived a perfect sinless life but Jesus. No one else has paid the price for the sins of the world but Jesus. No one else hung on a cross as our substitute for us, being treated like we deserve so that we might be treated like he deserves. No one's done that but Jesus. No one has been buried in the tomb for three days, stone rolled over, and then on the third day, rise victoriously from the dead but Jesus. There's no other name. It does not matter how sincere a person is if they don't know Jesus. It doesn't matter how nice a person is if they don't know Jesus. It doesn't matter how peaceful a person is if they don't know Jesus. Friends, the gospel is open to all people. Anyone can get in on this, but they can't know the real Jesus if we change the message and don't tell them the truth. We must not change the message to be culturally appropriate. Friends, this is God's gospel. It does not belong to us. We are stewards of his message. There's a world of difference between communicating the message in a way that can be understood and heard in a current cultural moment versus changing the message to be liked. There's one gospel, one king, one Lord, one name by which we might be saved, and his name is Jesus. Lastly, Jesus was absolutely confident that rejection wasn't the end of the story, and so can we. Jesus knew that resurrection was right around the corner. Jesus knew that in his rejection, he would become the cornerstone. So the popular poem goes, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, we will follow Jesus on the Calvary Road if we walk with him. There's going to be a great mixture of joy and hardships, of acceptance and rejection. We might lose relationships, but Jesus promised that we're going to receive so much more in return in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. And on that great day when the king returns and the dead are raised, we will be raised with him in glory. The sting of death will be undone. Victory will be won. And as Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus promised, in this world, we will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So let's go with Jesus, living on mission in both word and deed, sharing the good news to all who would hear, and working for a more just community. And we can count on opposition in one way or another. Let's pray for courage as we keep sharing while we wait and watch for Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray together.
Jesus, thank you that you are our cornerstone. That you say, anyone who wants to get in on this can come to me. So I pray now, O oh God, that you do work in our hearts, that we would respond to this message as you would have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.